Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast with me, Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, Labour peer Maurice Glasman on why we should all hail King Boris of Merry England. Thatcherite Minister Connor Burns on the big question. Is Boris Johnson really the new Margaret Thatcher? And Conservative MP Andrew Bridgen on why Boris's victory at the Red Wall is only the start of the battle. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, or leave us a review. And email us at any time at orderorder at mailplus.co.uk. Well, that was quite an election victory for Boris Johnson, wasn't it? Now let's hear from the Tory winners and the Tory losers. Mr Speaker, I wonder if you can guess what this Parliament is going to do once we put the withdrawal agreement back. We're going to get Brexit done. Mr Speaker, I think, I think, even, I think even, your, even your parrot, uh, Mr Speaker, would have been able to cite that one by now. We've lost. We have to face up to that. We're going to leave Europe. Well, that was Boris Johnson trying, and I don't think succeeding really, uh, not to sound too triumphant at his remarkable victory. And after him, there was the very tired voice of Michael Heseltine, sounding rather like a dead parrot. (laughs) The great Europhile grandee finally throwing in the towel on the Remain campaign. It's quite remarkable, the turnaround, isn't it, Amanda? It it is, Simon. I mean, for we Conservatives who sort of long for this kind of majority um, to get Brexit done, as Boris would say. Uh, it was more. It was beyond everyone's expectations, and I think you know the, the whole notion of Boris being triumphant. Um, one of the first things he did the day after the election was to go to Tony Blair's seat, <laughs> Sedgefield, um, yeah, and go to Sedgefield and say, "I will keep my promise to you who have lent." And the expression he keeps using is, "You have lent us your votes. We do not take this for granted." I thought that, that was a pretty good speech, you know. But but uh, I thought that was like a scene from Game of Thrones, <laughs> the, the the new king going going to the the lair of the former king and staking his flag in the ground. But, yeah, but, um, but Tony Blair's despised by the Labour Party now, so there was. I just thought the symbolism was was quite um, exquisite, and um, yeah, I liked it. But I think the, what 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 is remarkable is that not just the size of the Tory majority. They've got a hundred new MPs. The range of backgrounds is the like of which we've never really seen before in the Tory party. I mean, they now have the first openly gay Muslim MP, not just in Britain, but in the world. Uh, and getting back to Boris Johnson, he's kind of hit the ground running, hasn't he? I mean, after Sedgefield, uh, he chaired a cabinet. And all of a sudden, uh, we've already had some, some big decisions, like he's going to write into law that Britain must uh, complete the trade deal by the December deadline, which I think has taken Brussels by surprise. But it's a clear statement of intent, isn't it? Well, you've got to applaud him. They both, everyone looked completely exhausted after the election. But he just, he's like that that ever-ready battery thingy. You know, he just keeps on going. He just keeps bouncing up again. Um, and, And I do think it's very impressive, especially with the message. So his two messages, key messages in the first few days of his new um, term as Prime Minister were, we are going to get Brexit done, the warning to the EU, as you've just said. Um, And the second thing was to the north of England and to everyone in the Red Wall that 
we will not abandon you. And then he's he's made it clear he's going to slash a few government departments. Hurrah. Scrap the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Hurrah. Which, which will make it a lot easier for him to call the next election at a time of his own choosing. In fact, it's, some would say it's quite hard to see him not winning a second term. Well, at the moment, the Labour Party is in complete disarray. But they don't even have a functioning leader. Some would argue they haven't for some time. <laughs> and then we've got... Uh, Tory reshuffle coming up in the new year. And I think my tip for that is if he's got any sense, if he wants to show the working class voters that he's really on their side, he should get rid of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think that comment he made on Grenfell may not have been um, intended the way it came over. I think it would be a good sign. It would be good for Jacob as well to serve some time on the back benches to atone for that. It's very rare that we disagree, Simon, but we do on this. I think that if Boris is a one-nation uh, prime minister, then you need people like Jacob in there. And I think he's really quite a fine man. He just made a terrible mistake. The monster must go. The monster must not go. Save the monster. Monster. <laughs> Save the monster. There was absolutely a positive in terms of the policy platform in relation to uh, uh, tackling the inequalities, poverty and uh, change and transformation that was absolutely needed and that this country needs. Uh, I've had no phone calls or messages from anyone in Jeremy or his team, which given that I was in today telling my staff that they're going to be redundant a week before Christmas, I think shows that we have in Jeremy a man without honour and without shame and a, a type of preening narcissism that means that he thinks he's still got something left to offer the Labour okay. movement and Labour voters who deserted us in their millions. Well, there you have the, the contrasting voices of, of the Labour battle that started. I mean, the first one was, was the voice of Claudia Webb, who's the momentum-backed um, Labour MP for Leicester East, showing no sign of contrition, effectively saying she thinks the, the Corbyn cult can carry on. On the other side, you had the remarkable words of Mary Cray, who was the moderate Labour MP who lost her Wakefield seat and she was in the Commons um, clearing out her office and she happened to see Jeremy Corbyn posing for selfies with a group of youngsters and she went up to him and berated him and in, in her words gave him the, the hairdryer treatment saying how can you stand there taking selfies when you're the man that's lost my seat, you betrayed the working classes, it'll be your fault for five more years of Tory austerity and this Labour battle is like something... I don't think I've ever seen anything like it before. Well, it's a, as, it's a fight for the heart of the party, isn't it? And Jeremy Corbyn has taken the party, along with his momentum army, uh, he's taken it so far to the left that a lot of uh, really decent Labour people just think it's unelectable now. But it is... I mean, it is just incredible, isn't it, to think that that he doesn't even have the graciousness to talk to one of his MPs who's lost their seat. Mm. Doesn't even have the decency. And yet his whole, his, the quintessential thing about Jeremy Corbyn was his decency. Yes, I, no I noticed that um, Mary Cray and other Labour MPs said that none of them had received a, a message from Corbyn or anyone in his office. And people drew a comparison between that and Gordon Brown and Theresa May after they effectively lost their respective elections. Within 24 hours, they had contacted or written to every single of their MPs who lost a seat, apologising. I mean, it's remarkable. I think we're getting to see a lot of the real character of Jeremy Corbyn in defeat, in that he's not gracious, he's not thoughtful of other people. Um, and, you know, the sooner they can replace him with someone that, that 
represents the Labour Party properly, the better. Mm, and, and and now the 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 battle has started now for for the succession, and it's clear that the the Corbyn Easters they clearly, obviously Corbyn is going to have to go. But it's clear that they're, they're hoping to cling on to the Corbyn style of politics by making sure that he can be around for a while to organise the leadership contest. And he wants the, the, the Corbyn Easter that they want to take over is Rebecca Long-Bailey. Yeah. Uh, she's a northerner. Um, she's, she's pretty bright, very untested. Uh, but she's teamed up with um, her flatmate, um, Angela Rayner, who is more impressive, I think, um, extraordinary background. I think she was a single mum at the age of 16. Um, but but she's made a great success in the Labour Party. And it would be extraordinary, wouldn't it, if, if the Labour Party, never once having had a woman leader, were now to have a woman leader and a woman deputy leader. And I think that would be quite a novel quite a novel thing and a challenge for Boris. It would be incredibly novel, but I think one of the lessons that we've learnt from this election is that you put a young, um, attractive woman into lead a national party and they fall on their faces really quickly. And I give you the example of Jo Swinson, the Lib Dems. No longer the, the woman who said she was going to be our next Prime Minister. She's not even an MP anymore. They've got to have someone who's more experienced up against Boris. Boris is a trained fighter. But the, tr- the trouble with that is the experienced people. Well, there's, there's one obvious experienced candidate, and that is Sir Keir Starmer. Slick... Um, but he's an arch remainer. How, how can an arch remainer solve Labour's Brexit problems? He's from the metropolitan elite. He's very competent, but my goodness, he's dull. He's the greyest person in the whole world. I swear that he has everything he wears is a different colour of grey. Um, I, I suspect even his underpants, but I do not know that. I think we'll move on to higher ground than that, Amanda. <laughs> um which is everything. Um, I think there are some other interesting candidates. Lisa Nandy, um, the Wigan MP, very impressive, very appealing style of talking and discussing politics. Um, there's Emily Thornbury, not one of my favourites, and she's got in this extraordinary spat with Caroline Flint. Uh, Flint claimed that Thornbury had suggested that Labour voters who voted for Brexit were stupid. And now Emily Thornbury is suing her. It's just ridiculous. I'm sick to death of all these women being mentioned as a potential leader. But actually, come to think of it, I'd really like Yvette Cooper to get a run for it. I think she's great. Oh, Yvette. She's wet. She's he, not Yvette. She's, no, she's great. She's got hidden, hidden strengths. And she's not, um, she's not a Marxist. Mm. And and sh- and she could give a role to um, to Ed Balls. Who I've always rather I've always rather liked Ed Balls. He was hated when he was Chancellor, but after Strictly Come Dancing, he's a kind of a folk hero. We could be a way love, back for him. We love Ed. But the one I think the um, the, the Labour male that I really rate is Stephen Kinnock, son of Neil Kinnock. Um, he he was a Remainer, but he's taken a really pragmatic, grown-up view about Brexit. He represents a, 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 a working-class Welsh seat. He's got his father's beautiful Welsh baritone voice, and unlike his dad, he, he's not—he's not a—he's not, not a raving hothead. I, I'm surprised he's not—he's not putting his hat in the ring because I think he'd be brilliant. I wonder if he will, Simon. I met him at a party last summer, and expected to have the normal hostility from the left. Um, and I just found him incredibly articulate. He was in despair over the leadership um, of the Labour Party under Corbyn, but had never been publicly disloyal. And I just remember looking at him and hearing him speak and, and explain his vision for the future. And I thought then, you could lead this party where your dad couldn't.
pro-Brexit Labour peer Lord Glasman fears his party could be out of power for 25 years because of Corbyn's defeat. Glasman, a working-class Londoner, says the Tories are now the party of the proletariat and state intervention too, all because of Brexit. Glassman cheekily hails Boris Johnson as the King of Merry England and he warns Labour not to be so foolish as to think Johnson may not be a success as Prime Minister. This election is the most troubling election for my party, certainly in my lifetime, but I think even from before my lifetime. It's important to understand that what the Conservatives have done is change the class composition of their party. They are now a party um, of the post-industrial working class areas, Labour's heartlands, and the small towns and the shires and the suburbs of England. Almost the same coalition uh, that won the Brexit referendum. It's a transformation of the class basis of government, of the Conservative Party, which is now much more proletarian, much more regional, much more provincial. You you talk about this election being transformative. In, In terms of how long the Labour Party might be out of government, how long could that be? Well, it's potentially fatal for Labour. I mean, if they can't win... For how, for how long? For Oh, it's at least 10 years, potentially, for, for a generation, uh, because it no longer has its heartlands. Even in Thatcher's, the years of Thatcher's supremacy, um, 83, 87, they still won Bassetlaw, they still won Bolsover, they, mm. they kept the affections of people throughout the North. Um, So this is the breakdown of Labour's geographic and regional presence. And do you you think it's how will the Conservative Party live up to its promise to represent the working class? Well, it's, I I think, in two fundamental ways. And the first is, is really important. It is the Conservatives who have rejected neoliberalism or fiscal orthodoxy. They are committed to an activist state in many ways. The Conservative Party has, has claimed it to be the heir to, to Keynes. They are going to be interventionist on transport, on infrastructure, on housing projects. They are going to actively engage in boosting the economy. And that's the whole key of leaving the EU, because under the conditions of Lisbon, state aid and competition law would prohibit that sort of thing. So it's moving into that space where government can play an active role in economic renewal and in the renewal of of areas, obviously a space that should have been natural labour territory. So the first area, this is a complete break with Thatcherism and with Cameron and with fiscal orthodoxy. And the, the, the second area is a really conscious attempt to make the Conservative Party a hospitable place for working class people to be active and to be involved in politics. Where Labour goes from here in terms of, in terms of its leadership, I mean, do you think it will take one leader before they're back in power, or two, or half a dozen? <laughs> well, if you, if you just look at the realities of the electoral result, um, there is... There is it's impossible for Labour to really win the next election. The choice, the choice before it is, does it embrace um, Brexit and the possibilities of a genuinely left economic... Ah, you, you think the key is for them now to embrace Brexit and not to carry on fighting the Remain battle? Exactly. But if, if Labour died, you know, to quote Johnson, dies in the ditch trying to block Brexit, which it cannot conceivably do, 
um, then the damage will go on for far longer. Whatever it is, it's going to be at the very minimum a 10-year renewal. And, and Boris has, is the new king of Merry England. He has the entire... His party is in, is in full to him. He has a very solid parliamentary debo- uh, majority. Um, Labour at the moment will be very weak in, in being able to, to block him. So, so he has an incredible freedom to act. And it, the strategy that he's pursued is to remorselessly target the North and the Midlands and the working class areas there. Do you think he can be a successful Prime Minister? Um, well, he's led an extraordinarily successful campaign and it would be entirely foolish for Labour to think that having abandoned the constraints of the EU and of fiscal orthodoxy, um, that the investments that he will make won't have a very significant effect. Do you find yourself being attracted to this new-look Conservative Party, of the, of the Brexit working-class Conservative Party? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm completely faithful to, to Labour and it's a source of enormous heartbreak to me this abandonment of the, um, of the working class but I think that everybody has, a, has an interest in things getting better we've had a terrible three years since the referendum result and it's vital to bring um, jobs to deepen democracy to the deprived regions of the country. Wow, Amanda, who would have thought we'd have had a senior Labour politician hailing Boris as King of Merry England? Extraordinary, isn't it? And the fact that he says, they predicts that maybe it'll be 25 years um, for, before we see another Labour government. It's already been 10 years, more than 10 years. That's like a third of a century. I, I just love just extraordinary. I just love the King of Merry England. It sort of conjures up uh, like Shakespeare's Falstaff in Henry V, or perhaps more appropriately, Bottom in Midsummer Night's <laughs> Dream. But that is kind of Boris's appeal in a way, and it, in the same way that those Shakespearean characters resonated with with you know the working class audiences of Shakespearean times. So does Boris. Glassman's right, isn't he? There's something very every man about Boris that no one has ever really been able to describe. You know, there's just something that he shouldn't, but he does appeal to people across the board mm. and um, to women as well. I was going to say, every <laughs> is it every man or every woman? Um, but the, the other thing, as you, as you pointed out, is Glassman saying Labour could well be out. Impossible, he said, I think, to win the next election. They could be out for a generation, which is 25 years or so. And, and if you think back, uh, when, when Labour lost in, in 1979 to Margaret Thatcher... They had three leaders before Blair came along. They had Michael Foote lost, Neil Kinnock lost, John Smith lost. And the same happened when the Tories lost in 1997. You had William Hague, who you worked for. I did. Wasn't your fault that they never got back in <laughs> entirely. Then, then we had Ian Duncan Smith. Then we had Michael Howard. Those three lost as well. It was only then that Cameron got in. It just makes you wonder... Um, may, maybe we're going to have Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Maybe they'll all lead Labour to defeat before they find their saviour. Oh, my Lord, that's a depressing thought. You'd have to listen to them whinging every morning on the Today programme. Not such a depressing <laughs> thought if you're a Conservative. But I, I think Glassman's <sighs> onto something. And the, the sea change we've seen here, it's going to take a long time for Labour Party to turn that round. Especially as Jeremy Corbyn is refusing to accept responsibility for it and saying our message was right, we won the, the moral argument. Well, quite frankly, that's an insult to all the people who turned blue, voted blue. 
International Trade Minister Connor Burns has the unique distinction of being the Tory MP closest to both Boris Johnson and Margaret Thatcher. Connor was one of Maggie's most devoted confidants and among the first to back Johnson for leader. He says Lady Thatcher will be thrilled by Boris's election triumph and he says the two leaders actually have much in common but that Johnson will be a more gentle and compassionate version of the Iron Lady. I interviewed Connor in his cavernous ministerial office, so the sound is a little bit muffled, but there is certainly nothing muffled about his opinions. What I think Boris and Margaret Thatcher have in common is they're both great campaigners. They have a great ability to connect to parts of the population that Tory leaders traditionally find it hard to do. Um, But this is certainly not a carbon copy of, of the 1980s, because the challenges are so different. What people forget about Mrs. Thatcher is what made her so successful was her modernity. She was applying enduring principles to change circumstances and new challenges. And Boris is doing exactly the same. So he's certainly not reheating Thatcherism. In fact, she probably wouldn't recognise much of what he wants to do as Thatcherism. No, but one, one distinctive thing that, that, that I think they have in common is that just as <coughs> Boris Johnson has managed to connect with working-class former Labour supporters in the North. Margaret Thatcher did the same, didn't she, with with, with Labour voters who felt oppressed by unions, who weren't able to buy their council houses. So the ability to connect with the working class, they do share. So that is totally true, and it is a great failing of the metropolitan liberal left to assume that the working-class voter is a not is not a patriotic voter. Mm. Were that to be true, we had a pretty thin time in the First and Second World Wars. And Margaret Thatcher faced a similarly left-wing, metropolitan-leaning Labour leadership, as Jeremy Corbyn did, facing uh, Boris. And both of them realised that you could appeal over the heads of those people directly to the real, decent, patriotic British people who were proud of their country, didn't like to see their country bullied by the European Union or the European community as it was in her time and respected and admired leaders who are prepared to stand up for their country and the values that they take for granted. Mm. Now, M- Margaret Thatcher famously was, was forever taking her handbag to European summits but she never handbagged them s- so extremely that we actually came out of Europe. Boris Johnson is taking us out of Europe. Um, how do you think Margaret Thatcher would have, would have thought of that? Well, I think, no, I don't think I know, because she told me way before she died that she, she believed in leaving the European Union. Do you think she'd have been one of those cheering on election night where the Conservatives went Blythe Valley and Bolsover, the seat of her uh, uh, nemesis, Dennis Skinner, were falling to the Conservatives? I think she would have been absolutely delighted. And what I'm sad to say is I think she'd have been deeply saddened by the behaviour of her successor during that uh, campaign. John Major. Yeah. And I think she would now look at him as being a little bit of a footnote between her great majority in 87 and Boris Johnson's great majority of 2019. Um, why, and and, and explain, what, explain why you say that, because obviously it, 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 John Major started out as her chosen heir and successor. And he ended up endorsing people uh, who were standing against adopted Conservative candidates. Margaret Thatcher always wished the Conservative Party all the success in the world and would never endorse somebody standing against us. Well, you might say the same for, for Michael Heseltine, uh, uh, who, who very came, who really, if, if any one Conservative is responsible for bringing her down, it was, it was Michael Heseltine. So I make a policy of not commenting on the irrelevant. I see a great similarity 
um, between where Boris Johnson finds himself now and where Mrs Thatcher was, funnily enough in 87, not in 83. If you remember in 87, the first thing she said when she returned to then Conservative Central Office is, we've got a very big job to do in those inner cities yes. because we need them to next time. And I think there's a parallel with what the Prime Minister has now done in his first day in office going to those northern heartland seats and saying very candidly to those people, look, I know you probably agonised over voting for us. I know you probably struggled. Your pen may have quivered. Uh, I will not let you down. We will work to rebuild or build trust in your communities. I see him very similar to her in 87, now recognising the big job this government has to do to deliver for those people. I think Boris, by definition, will be a, a gentler, uh, more consensus-driven, mm. uh, more compassionate because he's, than she was perceived to be. Because he's not a Thatcherite, is he? He's definitely not a Thatcherite, and she was not a one-nation Tory. He is. So in that sense, they are, they are actually very well, different. I, I'm not totally certain, as someone who historically would have described myself as a Thatcherite, what mm. a Thatcherite means anymore. Does he see himself as a kind of heir to, to, to Thatcher? No, I think Boris sees himself as an heir to many of the traditions within the Conservative Party, but he's one of those leaders that comes along, not all that often, she was one, who redefine terms in the way they want them defined and don't necessarily compare themselves or model themselves too much on that that's gone before. They have enough intellectual and political self-confidence to try and set their own direction. Margaret Thatcher served 11 and a half years in Downing Street. Can Boris top that? Oh, I think that's way too early to say. If anybody could do it, I think he could. Uh, I think the tone he struck in the early days is absolutely the right one, a degree of humility, not hubris. And if we deliver for them, which we're all absolutely determined to do, not least from this department, to open up trading opportunities around the world, then I hope we can approach them in four and a half or five years' time in humility and ask them to not just lend us their votes, but to enthusiastically re-elect us to serve them again. Crikey, I wouldn't want to fall out with Connor Burns describing Michael Heseltine as an irrelevant... And John Major as a footnote. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Well, he's kind of right, though. This, well, is, this has swept them all away. But isn't it fantastic the way he's just sort of saying, that's just the past. And, mm. and, I, and I, I, I'm, I do agree that... He doesn't seem to be channeling Margaret Thatcher. Of course, he's fantastic. Boris is fantastically successful. I always think of him much more seeing himself as a reincarnation of, of Winston Churchill. Always thought it. Yes, I, 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 think, you, I think you're right. He very all his language was battle. You think all during the election, the whole time, it was all about war. It was all about being in the trenches. I think that he sees himself as a reincarnation. Well, Maggie Thatcher's favourite prose was sitting astride a tank and declaring war <laughs> on the Russians, so I think she was fairly warrior-like. But I think the, the, the interesting thing that struck me during that conversation was that um, they have both connected with the working class because Maggie kind of mobilised Essex Man, uh, as it was called at the time, yeah. but, but a very southern phenomenon. Northern Man still didn't forget... Well, we had the, the miners' strike... And mass unemployment, frankly, in the north, they're, not, they're hardly going to take to for that. Boris has got over that. Boris has got the northern side. Boris has won over Workington Man. And I think that is a significant difference. I mean, beyond that, I think, as Connor said, it's the sheer originality 
of both. Margaret Thatcher had something unique. She stood out in her generation of Conservatives, and Boris clearly stands out amongst his. I think he's right. They're just an exceptional, exceptional people. And we take it for granted now, Simon, that you know Margaret Thatcher becoming Prime Minister, the first female Prime Minister in the Western world, mm. was was. We, we think it's like a normal thing now, mm. but it was extraordinary. You know, for women like me at that time, it was groundbreaking. Mm. You know, she was the ultimate feminist, and yet feminists never embraced her. She was the first woman prime minister, but Boris is not the first womanizer prime, prime minister. <laughs> oh, no. There's been several of those. <laughs> Are we back on John Major again? <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the, the other thing I thought Connor said that, that, that I, I thought was really significant was, and bear in mind, Connor is a devoted uh, admirer of Margaret Thatcher, but he kind of acknowledged that um, some of her policies were, were, she thought they were too harsh. And he said that he thought Boris would be a kinder and more compassionate leader. And I think, I think it's that that Johnson has got to work on. He's got to do that. He's got to be the kind of one nation, one nation leader. And he can't, he can't employ the same ruthless methods that Margaret Thatcher did. Conservative MP Andrew Bridgen says Boris Johnson is in for a shock if he thinks spending money on improving the North will be easy. Hard-nosed Leicestershire MP Bridgen says Labour Town Hall chiefs in the North still control the so-called Red Wall. And he claims that some of them would rather see Johnson fail, even if it means the North remains poorer than the South, just to make sure that their electorate does not vote Tory at the next election. Now, we've taken a swathe of northern seats where we have no uh, representation or very little representation at local government level or unitary level. They'll be controlled by the, uh, the Labour Party. And we're going to raise the expectation that suddenly we're going to wave this magic wand from central government mm. and, and make all these people's lives better. We can, we can deliver Brexit. That's, that's not, not involving local government. But when it comes to investment by government, you need to invest money to leverage in private sector investment so that for every pound of of public sector money invested you're going to get £10 worth of benefit and make it sustainable because just giving money from central government is not a sustainable way forward to regenerate regenerate an area because they want more money next year. What you've got to do is is attract new businesses and all this is is under the control of local government and their interactions with council officers and the planning departments and those are going to remain under Labour control. Now, I can see that the Labour Party could well want to kick back, uh, and if they can stifle uh, the new Conservative government and the new Conservative MPs' aspirations to, to, to create change in the first couple of years, all of this infrastructure spending and, and uh, rejuvenating the economy, it takes years, and it will be a slow burn, and we need to make progress very rapidly. It could be like running through treacle for some of those new MPs who will, who will not have many friends in local government. But I think a lot of people will find it hard to understand that, that um, if you're running a city in, 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 in the north, that you would, act, you would actively try to make it harder for a conservative government to invest in the north because you think you've got some political motive. The, the constant worry from, from Labour MPs that if, if their area becomes more prosperous, people are more likely to vote conservative. And you're, you've got... Um, parts of the north now with a conservative MP where expectations have been raised where you've got decades of control of local government, all the councillors the planning committee by the Labour Party and that is 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 the 
irreducible red wall and the way that many of these uh, northern councils have got more money in is is, is the best way f- their strategy appears to me to be you've got to have more deprivation more poverty than you had last year so you get more money in well I mean that has not worked that cycle of, 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 of an ever bigger begging bowl has not worked what we need now is some real conservative policies and we need the private sector to play its part and come in but you know if you're, a, if you're a potential investor and, and you've got a more business-friendly area that's run by a Conservative council, where are you going to build your factory? And you think they'd rather keep it that way? They'd, ra- they'd rather keep it that way with poor roads, poor schools, poor facilities, poor businesses, because it suits them, because it keeps them labour. Well, look at the track record. Why are they where they are now? So what you're saying is in 18 months' time, those labour authorities would like to say, look... Boris Johnson came in, he said you'd save you all, he's done nothing, but you would say it's because they've tried to stop him, so they can get political credit for it. Well, well knowing how it might play out is, is an advantage. I, I advised number 10 at the, on Saturday that this is my concerns, and we need to come up with a plan. I, my, my advice for Boris Johnson is to get the leaders of all these northern councils, and the ones in the Midlands where, where we don't necessarily have uh, conservative representation, or we're not conservative control, get them down to number 10. He's got to offer them the carrot but he's got to have a big stick as well and, and point out that if, if you resist uh, uh, delivering these me- measures you'll be named and shamed and the electorate the people you're letting down you're not giving them these opportunities um, you, your actions will be exposed and that may have to be the stick I don't know what other stick we can use but, but to say that you know just because you've got a conservative MP in an area you've never had a conservative MP before which has got tiers of local controlled Labour government uh, it's going to be you can make these changes easily it's not true and we need to make progress in the next two years because these are these are long-term projects that the people want to see benefit tangible benefits they don't want to see they don't want to see bits of paper and plans they want to see cranes and, and that takes time. Well, I think that's a bit of a wake-up call for Boris. Um, as An- Andrew Bridges is making the point that just because you've won a load of Conservative MPs in the North, they don't really control anything MPs. The North is controlled by the Labour-dominated city councils and planning committees. And what he's saying is, I mean, cynical though it, though it is, is that these Labour authorities would rather see Boris Johnson fail, even if it means their, their local areas becoming worse off, because they'd be more likely to vote Labour if he fails. How depressing is that? They would rather see people in their communities have fewer new homes built, you know, fewer roads, fewer, uh, you know, services than to actually open the door to another, you know, Tory election. But, you know, it's the price of devolution, isn't it? You know, there's all of this money's been poured into these major cities. Um, it was all being heralded as a wonderful, you know, modern way of, of spreading money out throughout the country. But a lot of it's just going straight into the back pockets of the councils. But, but I, I think that the um, you often find this with prime ministers come in with bold plans. And Tony Blair would say, used to say this, that the difficult thing is taking on the machinery of government. Blair found it very hard to get control of the Whitehall machine. And what Bridgen is saying is that Johnson is going to find it even harder to get hold of the local government machine in the north because it's Labour controlled. And of course, that brought him to his main point, which is that if Johnson wants to get anywhere, he's got to call these town hall leaders in, these Labour chiefs and say, look, you can have this money. But if you try and stand in my way, I will name and shame you. I think he probably will. Good luck to him. All right, Simon, what's your topical tune for this week? 
It is Mr. Blue Sky by the Electric Light Orchestra. Fabulous song, and obviously all about the joys of a blue sky. They didn't sing a Tory blue sky, but you get the picture. And it's all about how a blue sky can transform everything. And certainly in the Commons this week, it's looked like blue skies days. And I I should point out, for the sake of accuracy, I did just double-check whether Boris Johnson had blue eyes, and the only thing that came up on the Google was a press report and a column by the former male columnist Quinton Letts. Uh, and above a photo of Boris, pictured with two scantily clad ladies, the headline <laughs> said, At the sight of a bulbous bosom, <laughs> Boris's blue eyes quiver like a medieval banquet swan jelly. <laughs> so, I think it's fair to say this week, Boris is Mr Blue Sky. Mr Blue Sky, please tell us why you had to hide away for so long. Where did we go Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget, you'll be able to listen back to this and all our Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for more political chat and insights. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Goodbye.